All right, well, this morning we are continuing. Uh, last week we were in the men's retreat. Those of you guys who were with us, what a, a wonderful time we had just hanging out with God for a few days. There's nothing, nothing like that. Um, this morning we're back in our series that we started, and we, we interrupted our normal broadcast, if you will, to start the year thinking in some categories I feel like the Lord wanted us to sit in and listen in. And, and there, all these messages are coming out of uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And, you know, just as a side encouragement, uh, sometimes we read the Bible, and I appreciate you guys are very helpful in encouraging us who preach. You know, preaching is an exercise of staring at the Bible and just sharing with others what you've seen. That's what preaching kind of is. It's just you, you stare at something for a while and you get to say, hey, did you notice this and did you notice this and did you notice this? Well, you know, we're going we're gonna to be in this short passage for several weeks and we already have been there for several weeks. But I, I hope all of us can appreciate there's so much in God's word for us to see. And, and I'm pretty sure most of us, if we've read the Bible at all, we've read these passages. And so it's not like, ah, oh, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. No, we, we know it's in the Bible. But we can encounter something new and deeper as we read again and again and again. And so I hope that's going to be our experience as we navigate through this. I titled this little series, in light of the fact that we're starting a decade, titled the series, A Decade of Coming and Going. And as I filled this in, I want that title to make sense to you. There's a reality. You and, you and I come to things. It's just a pattern of our life. We come to stuff. You know, in this passage, Jesus Christ himself issues this invitation to us from wherever we are. And he describes where we are. He issues an invitation to come to him. How many of you guys know that your life has a bunch of people, a bunch of situations, that are issuing you an invitation right now. They're inviting you to come. There's stuff happening today. Apparently there's some big game going on today. It's inviting you to come, isn't it? Right? There's all kinds of stuff. And I think the volume of things that are standing in my life saying, hey, could you come over here for a minute? Hey, could I have a word with you? Hey, come here just for a second. Hey, come here for not more than just a second, right? I mean, there's invitations for you to come to all kinds of things. And then in the next decade, we're going to take up a lot of those invitations. And then there's a doing of life that every one of us, we do life. We go somewhere all the time. We come and we go all the time. It's how we live our lives. And what we see in this passage, and, and we're going to broaden this into the go category in a couple of weeks, is this massive invitation from God himself inviting us to come. But that's not all you're going to do as a Christian. At some point, there's a massive reality to our lives that we are invited to go as well. And to be healthy as a human being, we need to do both. We need to come well and we need to go well. Right, so we're still in the come category. We just set a piece of that verse in front of you this morning. Matthew chapter 11, just verse 28. says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right. J.C. Ryle was a pastor in the 1800s. 
Speaking on this verse, he says, There are few texts more striking than this in all the Bible. Few that contain so wide and sweeping an invitation. Few that hold out so full and comfortable a promise. Right? This verse, it, it, it explains our lives to us. It diagnoses our lives. Like when this Bible verse screams at us to come from the place that feels laborious and heavy laden and under burdens, it, it describes and explains our life to us, right? That is how life feels to many of us. But then it's going to put its finger on a remedy as well. And this one little passage identifies our need, our diagnosing our illness, and sets before us the cure as well. What you and I are in need of is finding rest for our souls. This is Jesus' brief presentation. It's like, hey, I got an audience with you. Let me just tell you, your life feels like this. And I can give you the rest for your soul that you're after. Right? So that's the offer that's before us. But what is it that we really need? Right, remember, I opened this series by talking about the, the consequences of ideas. There's ideas out there. There's stuff available for you and for me to, to gravitate toward thinking that that's going to fix me. That's going to help me. That's going to give my life meaning and purpose. That's going to put me on a path that matters. So, so what exactly is it that the human person needs? Right, so I'm going to run us through some ideas here for a moment. So don't, don't get lost in what feels like a, an exercise that you probably wouldn't do. I mean, nobody wants to go back and revisit philosophy. But that's what we're going to do here for a moment. Because ideas have consequences. Ideas get started and get furthered. And you and I start living our lives out of them. So it's interesting, if you go back and you study, matter of fact, most of the fields of study that you ever took in school are linked to the fact that human beings are trying to figure themselves out and improve their lot in life. Every class you took was engaging those two things. Right? So there's history. You took classes in history, right? Telling the story about how human beings did life before you came along. The ideas that they furthered, the, the things that they pursued, the problems that they had along the way. And then man sought to explain himself. So there's philosophy classes that you may have taken. There are psychology classes that you may have taken. There are sociology classes that you may have taken. There are political science classes that you may have taken. You know, what all these things are doing is they're staring at humanity in various aspects and trying to figure us out why why do we do what we do and what exactly is it that we need what drives us to do this stuff so you know psychology goes inside the individual tries to figure out what, what's playing out on the inside of me that's driving me sociology then stares out at a large group of people and says what's the problem with getting along here how, co- how come y'all can't seem to get along I get this work itself out. Political science looks back and studies, well, to help us get along, let's invent governments. Let's invent a way that we create laws and rules that the collective 
bunch of human beings are all going to live under this. So the, there's kings in our past, and there's dictatorships in our past, and then there's representative governments in our past, there's socialism in our past, there's all kinds of ideas. How can a bunch of human beings get in proximity to each other and behave and get along, just do stuff together? Right? So it's interesting. Jesus is interacting with something that's driving all this. Right? There's a reason why governments have to step in and people can't get along. And Jesus puts his finger on it, doesn't he? It's the internal restlessness of your life. It's your desperation, it's your drive, it's your hunger, it's that relentless thing on the inside of it that just never seems to get satisfied. Now listen, if you went to school and you hung around classes that were more about science and engineering and technology, listen, all those classes, they were trying to stare at human beings and say, hey, how can we improve this? How can we make this a better experience for you? What can we invent that we can insert into human experience that's going to make things easier? better, right? So those are the classes you took in that category. Still trafficking in the same issue that Jesus is talking about, stuff going on on the inside of us. Hey, science and technology is trying to talk about those things too. And then you have classes like art and music and literature. Today we have movies. You know, what, what, are, what is this aspect of our studies doing? Well, it's kind of setting in front of us the human experience, the drama of being a human being. You know, art tries to capture and music tries to capture and literature stories and movies try to capture the essence of the experiences you and I are having. Right? We're drawn to certain characters in a, in a movie, in a play. We read literature because it tells a story. We think an author's got an angle on this. It's like, ah... Oh, I get that. There's something about the way he tells the story of life, the struggle, the difficulties, the challenge. I I mean, I identify with that. And so we like that author or we like that movie. Hey, listen, this week, you know, whether you're a basketball fan or not, this week, you probably, if you're a human being, were affected by the death of Kobe Bryant. If you weren't affected, I'm not sure you're human. I mean, you don't have to love basketball. But, you know, there, there's, there's something about it. And I thought it was amazing. The, the whole world goes on pause for a, for a person they didn't know who played a sport for 20 years. But see, there's something about being human that identifies with the season of life he was a part of as you traveled through your story and Kobe's, he was there and you watched a lot of games and you went through stuff, you were doing life and there's, so there's nostalgia in your background that you identify with. You might identify with a person who found something that was challenging. He took it on and he did it in an unusual level. And and you're drawn to that. He achieved something. There was some success there. Our souls are drawn to that. Just the sheer fact of uh, a wife being suddenly separated from her husband and her child. If I didn't never even know who Kobe Bryant is, I'm affected by that. So there's a, there's a human dimension. Our souls have a restlessness in us in this world. And, and rightly so. Our hearts go out to people who are affected and broken by those kinds of experiences. It, it, that should affect us. Because we're human, right? Jeremy Pierre wrote a book called The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. 
He touches on this as believers. I think we have an obligation to care for people with a recognition of their humanity. He says, our favorite poets, musicians, and storytellers resonate with us because they capture our experience so beautifully. The ability to capture the experience of another person not only makes for a good poet, but also a good friend, not to mention counselor, pastor, or parent. Anyone involved in personal ministry of any kind knows how hard daily life can be to understand. The goal of understanding is not merely to empathize, but also to help others see how their experience is best understood in light of what God says about it. Philosophers and theologians have for ages explored the simple question of why people do what they do. Even with a chorus of expertise, our own experience is an obscurity to us. Why? Why do people do what they do? What is driving us? What is going on on the inside of us that we create the world that we have? That we create the life that we have? Right? Well, I want to rush you through some, some thoughts, some philosophy here on how we get to some of the ideas that are in our world today. Right, so stick with me. I'll do this quickly because I know a lot of you intentionally never took philosophy for reasons that are probably good. Uh, but this is your crash course in philosophy. Right, so what, what are these studies that we all go to school for? What are they telling us about ourselves? And are they getting it right when they educate us? Right, if you go back and peer into philosophy... Right, um, you know, philosophy kind of gets its its heads up. You know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, famous guys that we can connect with. So you're back three, four hundred years BC when identifiable philosophers show up on the scene. You might be surprised if you go back and study philosophy how much of early philosophy was was very scientific in what it was seeking to engage with. Philosophers were often involved in biology, in chemistry, in physics, in astronomy. Right, and here's the basic reason. Philosophers wanted to figure out what are we, where did we come from, what are we doing here, and why do we do what we're doing. So they started to look in all kinds of interesting categories to figure that out. Right? So long before anybody understood chemistry and neutrons and electrons, etc., uh, a guy named Democritus, back in 400 BC, put forward the idea of an atomic theory. The idea that there's these tiny little particles that make up everything. Everything is made up of tiny little particles called atoms. It's a pretty fascinating thing for that early on, somebody to have identified that. But why was he going there? Because he's trying to figure out humanity. He's trying to, what are we made of? What makes us the way we are? Right, so if you fast forward from him, you get past Socrates and Plato into Aristotle. Aristotle begins to put forth some of these philosophical ideas based on the idea that stuff comes from somewhere. The stuff that we're made of comes from somewhere. So not to bore you, the word teleology is the study of things that have purpose, right? It's an explanation, follow me here, an explanation by reference to some purpose or end some goal or function. 
Human conduct, listen, human conduct is generally explained with reference to ends or goals pursued. So even Aristotle was recognizing that that things intrinsically have something that makes them what they are, but it's aimed at something else. He, He ultimately saw that what things were made of were attached to a bigger purpose. I don't know this is, you know, philosophical, who out there. Uh, But you understand, we're still trying to come to grips with the same stuff. So what exactly am I made of? And what exactly is my bigger purpose? Right? These aren't new questions. Fast forward a bit to the 17th century. John Frame in his book on philosophy says, The 17th century thinkers had something in common with the Greeks. They had limited the possible answers to the question of the ultimate constituents of the world, right? What is stuff made of? For the Greeks, there were four things. Everything was made up of these four things. Earth, air, fire, and water. It sounds so primitive, doesn't it? This is what everything's made of, right? If you're a Greek philosopher, hundreds of years BC. For the 17th century thinkers, there were two. Matter and mind. Alright, so everything's going to now try to get explained by the reality that our lives are made up of matter and mind. Material and immaterial realities. When Jesus stands in front of us and says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Alright, so man is figuring out he's not just a physical being. He's an immaterial being. He's got something functioning on the inside of him. That's what Jesus speaks to in this passage. Now the question is, what is that on the inside of us? And what exactly is it like? When you go to fix it, what's wrong with it? Can we just pause on that for a moment? Because I don't know if sometimes when we listen to people promote ideas about what's going to make your life good what's going to help you through the difficulties of this world do do you recognize people are peering into your soul unsure of what it's made of not clear on what's really there and offering you something that will fix it Well, well that is what Jesus was doing he was peering into your soul and he said you know when I look into your soul I find weariness I find burdens I find the labors of life. Come to me and you'll find rest in your soul. Right? So Jesus speaks as though he can make a difference in this category. But we already got some ideas here about what fixes us. Right? So again, let me, let me revisit on how do we get to where we are with some of our ideas. Right? So we run down the trail of philosophy. Right, most of us are only educated in Western thinking, right? But what if I introduce you to a guy named Han Fei? He's a philosopher from the 200s BC in China. Anybody ever heard of Han Fei? One, one thank you. Thanks for playing along. Uh, extra cobbler for you later. He gets extra cobbler, Vic. Uh, Han Fei has this idea to look into the inside of man and to describe what's there. And what he basically labels that the inside of man is corrupt. It's evil from the inside out. He was part of a movement called the legalist. And the legalists see the overwhelming majority of human beings as selfish by nature. 
They hold the view that human nature is evil. In which individuals are driven by selfishness. Why do people do what they do? Because they're selfish. That's what they came up with. According to legalism, selfishness in human nature cannot be eliminated or altered by education or self-cultivation. The 200s BC in China. Was that right? Because in the West, we don't think that way. So is he right? right? There's a guy who comes along in the 1700s named Rousseau. And he is the father of a lot of ideas that you and I think by default. Ideas that we buy into that are a reflex for us. But, but here's Rousseau's story. One day in 1749 at age 37 while walking to the Bastille... Rousseau saw an ad for an essay contest and he decided he would be interested in this. Asking a simple question. Here's the essay contest question. Has science made us better or worse? More or less moral? Aren't we still asking the same questions? Are cell phones helping us or hurting us? Right? I mean, we're, all, we're still asking the same stuff. We're still trying to figure out why is it that we keep bumping into our personal human corruption? Is this making it worse? Is that making it worse? All right, that's the question that he has to write an essay on. Well, he ends up winning the contest. Instantly rose to fame and forever changed the way humans see what it means to be human. Here's his basic thesis. Man is naturally good. And anything that's not natural has corrupted us from this natural state. Man is naturally good. So he's going to peer into the inside of us, right? So we have material and immaterial. He's going to stare into the soul and he's going to tell us we're basically good. We're basically good. Now listen, this is going to find its way into life all over the place, right? In education, he believed all behavior is learned. Sexual perversion, criminal mind, criminal behavior. Children are inherently innocent. Man is inherently innocent. He, he traveled with an idea called tabula rasa. If you're into philosophy, you know what that is. Tabula, tablet, tabula rasa. The idea that we come into this world with a blank slate. Like our soul is this blank slate. And so it's got nothing there. And, and we're, we're innocent. But we're going to write on that thing as we do life. And that's going to begin to determine who we are and who the world is going to be around us. Crime, his view on the criminal mind is it was created by social injustice. It's created by material inequality and injustice. And it needs a distribution of property. This is Rousseau in the 1700s. Anybody met Karl Marx? Right, this is going to become influential thinking. As a matter of fact, this writer in this article says, Rousseau's conception of human nature has been seen in the origin of many intellectual and political developments of the 19th and 20th centuries. He was an important influence upon Kant, Hegel, Marx, and the development of German idealism, historicism, and romanticism. I mean, do you get how Adolf Hitler picks any of this stuff up? If there's a interior quality of man that can be developed if you just develop it the right way 
then man will become superior in some category. So you just pick these ideas up. The human potential movement. You and I live in a culture that believes strongly in the human potential. Where do these ideas come from? Not Han Fei. He didn't believe a whole lot in human potential. He believed if I take you off your leash, you're going to do what selfishly appeals to you. Rousseau said, well, the only reason why that's happening is because other people have screwed you up. And so sometime after Rousseau comes and hangs around, we start moving towards psychology and the explanation of why people are the way they are. Sigmund Freud comes along, father of modern psychology. Freud's going to die in about the 1930s, if I remember correctly. He's going to answer the question, what's, what's up with us? What's wrong with us and what do people need? Freud hypothesized that emotional symptoms had their roots in a long-forgotten emotional trauma that needed to be recalled so that the emotions associated with it could be discharged. Right? This is what gave birth to psychoanalysis. Right? And, and listen, this is still in our thinking in massive ways. It is the idea that here you are in life, life's not working for you, you're turned inside out, your guts are on the table, you're stumbling, things are hard, etc. Psychoanalysis tries to say, hey, can we watch the replay on all that's happened to you and try and figure out where did somebody do something to you that derailed your potential? This is Rousseau's ideas. This is the idea that you'd be fine if the people that you got around growing up hadn't been what they were or done to you what they did, you'd be fine. See, because tabula rasa, we all start off fine. We're all innocent. So if you're no longer functioning well, it's got to be somebody else's fault. You understand how we live in a victimization culture? It feels like everybody's got the right to get their back up because somebody definitely did something wrong to me along the way. And that's true. Freud is going to give way to other psychologies that come along. Pop psychology that, you know, it's pop because it's popular. It became much more in vogue. A lot of Freud stuff nobody even knew about unless you took psychology classes. But pop psychology comes along, 70s and 80s especially, and, and wants to say, here's the problem on the inside. You know, I've got material image. Here's what's going on on the inside of you. It's a, it's a lack of self-esteem. Massive books are going to be written all around that topic. That what, what needs to happen is you need to find reasons to feel better about yourself. And so this approach to solving, this is, it's not Jesus standing on the outside of you saying, come to me. It's an idea that says, come to yourself, look inside, find reasons in you to feel better about you. Oh, and all you people who are an audience to this person, help with the applause. Your role is to stand and observe everything that's applaudable about them and take up your place to make them feel better about themselves. Listen, this is... This is an alternative to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You can come somewhere. There are ideas out there. I can't sum it up better than David Powelson does. In seeing with new eyes, he says it this way. He says, for about 10 years, through the mid-1990s, wherever you turned in the counseling world, 
you heard that problems in living were caused by painful experiences of being used, misused, and abused by others. Unpleasant emotions and destructive behavior were based on a sense of woundedness and emptiness from bad relationships. Childhood experience was where the action was. Those were the glory days of nurture. In other words, how you were cared for left the biggest impact on you. And thus the glory days of psychotherapy and support groups. Let's talk about your past. Let's dig up your past. Let's find out what went on. Then the world changed. The needy and hurting in herself, so marred by tragic experience, faded into the background. Not fully, though. Along about the mid-1990s, everyone discovered that our genes, hormones, and brains caused problems in living. Right? This is when we invented things like MRIs and technology that could show us imagery and see how our brains were functioning. Our bodies, not our families, were dysfunctional. We're now living in the glory days of nature, right? Like who we are by nature, and thus the glory days of biological psychiatry. The action is now in your body. It's what you got from mom and dad, not what they did to you. Now, though you guys are older, you've watched this happen. You've watched the emphasis of how people have tried to fix other human beings. By staring into their soul and recognizing their soul is in turmoil, their soul is racing, their soul feels burdens, their soul isn't functioning very well. How do you fix it? I just want you to see humanity is always interacting with how do you fix this? Be careful what idea you fall in love with. They're not all saying the same thing. And they're not all going to prepare you to face your own issues in your own soul. Right? So today, there is a wide array of voices that are out there that are speaking into this category. Right? They're going to show up in more popular settings. But they are hawking philosophical inner issue ideas. So whether you're Dr. Phil, or you're Oprah, or you're Rush Limbaugh, or you're conservative, or you're... Uh, progressive. Everybody's trying to say, this is why it doesn't work on the inside and here's how you fix it. Right? Remember, you know, the massive influence that if you just get educated correctly, that's in our world. How many of you guys realize that education is touted as a savior today? Tabula rasa. The idea that you're just a clean slate. So it's just a matter, we just need to put the right stuff in. That, that'll fix you. The Beatles tried to help us. Right? You write songs about life, about what's not working and why it's not working. I mean, imagine, imagine. (laughs) There's no heaven. What's the point of that song? If people could just stop feeling so strong about things in their world... They could just get along with each other. Imagine. There's no heaven. Nothing to live or die for. (laughs) Sorry, John. I can't imagine that. I'm sorry. I can't even go there. There's all kinds of stuff. I'm with Han Fei. I can find stuff that I want to live for. Maybe you can come up with nothing. Got nothing. I'm not angry about anything. I'm not eager for anything. I don't want anything. Imagine there's no heaven. 
Imagine there's nothing to live or die for. Wouldn't we all just get along? Well, if yeah, I mean, plants get along. I mean, yeah, I guess so. But that's a philosophy statement in the form of a song. And, and you know, so the Beatles have given way. You know, Lil Wayne's helping out today. Snoop Dogg. Uh, Taylor Swift and all of her innocence is helping us to figure out why it is that life on the inside is the mess that it is. And here's, here's the philosophy you need to have in place to deal with that. Every song communicates things like this. Right, now I'm going to read this to you because this is extremely, extremely important. It's in your outline. All these are trying to steer us to find ways to meet our need as human creatures. They're all trying to find what will make the human life a flourishing life with inner peace rather than a burdensome labor that provides so little rest. Now careful, because we started in a certain place that's critical that we remember. Remember this. When you don't hear one of these problem solvers speaking about human existence from a standpoint that originates in Genesis chapter 3 or Romans chapter 8, you automatically know they are leaving out the most fundamental and influential elements of our lives. If you're going to stare into the human soul and you're not aware... And you've gone blind to the fact that there's this thing called the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that changed everything about the world. It caved man in on himself. It took a being that was supposed to be plugged into God 24-7, taking his cues from the life of God, dependent upon this God to manage who he is. And it broke that tie and said, good luck, you're on your own. And man did become, as Han Fei said, a selfish individual because that's all he had. And sociology and political science is a study in what man did from that moment forward. How do we get along? Now that we're disconnected from God, now that he's no longer the central motivation of my soul, how do we get along? How do we relate to each other? And then Romans 8 just picks up that same theme and says, I don't know if you realize this, but all of creation has been subjected to futility in an effort by the God of the universe to frustrate the snot out of you. I didn't get as many laughs. You don't like that God would do that to you, do you? Well, what if your only hope is to look outside of yourself to the one who's going to come to you with an invitation and say, come to me. I'm the only one who can fix you. As long as you think you can fix yourself, you will not take him up on his offer. So the God who loves you decided he would frustrate everything in this world. Everything in this world is submitted to frustration. You want to know why your life feels frustrating? Well, let me go back and see what somebody did to me in the past. Uh... No, well, if you want to go all the way back, go back to Adam and see what he did to you in the past. Because <laughs> he unplugged you from God and he created a world that God then put on a temporary time stamp and said, this will only go on for so long and then I'm going to be done with this. But along the way, every human being needs to come in contact with the idea that apart from me, you can do nothing. And this God who loves us frustrates our lives left and right and left and right. So when we go to answer the question of what's going on the inside of our soul, we need this, right? If you're a 
wrote your outline there, if your solution to the human struggle doesn't engage in dwelling sin, the devil, and the sovereign purpose of God, then you are treating surface symptoms but not the disease. And not to throw all surface symptom treatment out the window here, and this is where we kind of get hung up in some weird ways. You know, if, if you're a parent, you have a, a, an infant, a toddler with a raging fever. I mean, this child is, you ever had your kids do this? I mean, they're like hot to touch. Like you touch them and they're like, I've never touched anything this hot. It would be wise and it would actually be helpful if you put that child into a cool bath. So, is that wrong to do? No, no, it's actually helpful at some level. However, you do recognize you haven't touched why they're so hot. You haven't healed the disease. You have temporarily, temporarily stifled the symptoms of the disease. So, you know, your life can come apart and you can go get some other ideas. And sometimes those other ideas will affect the temperature. They will lower the temperature of your life. There are forms of counseling and therapy and care that actually provide a level of help. And and in the same way that I'd say, hey, listen, if your baby's that hot, put them in cool, put them in cool water. Yeah, because that, that heat is disorienting. It's got problems. There would be natural things that we may do that do treat the symptom of what we have wrong with us. And I don't think it's wrong for us to pursue many of those things. But we do recognize, I hope, That those things are not curing anything. The thing that's generating this kind of heat in us, it gets its start in Genesis chapter 3. Not in who your mama was and whether she diaper trained you wrong and whether you were misused as a child and somebody did something that was out of bounds. Now listen, are are those things non-players at all? No, no. No, no, they're, they're important. We're human beings. We're affected by those things. But your biggest problem isn't those things. Jesus invites us to come to grips with something that's much, much deeper than this. There is traveling with us a disease in us called sin. Indwelling sin is in every one of us. It is a disease-like thing. It's going to flare up in a variety of ways along the way. And you may notice, especially in the world of relationships, right, when we go to relate to other people, right, that's when you, that's when you, you get found out. Or you got issues, and if you stay away from everybody, you might not have to deal with your issues. But if you're going to get around anybody, your issues are going to become issues. And they're going to come out. And that's where I think Han Fei has it more right than Rousseau does. The idea that traveling in us is something evil, something self-serving and something self-seeking. Now, here's how this plays out relationally. As long as you want what I want, we're good. (laughs) Right? Because there's something selfish in me that wants my life to be a certain way. And if you happen to want that too, all the better. This is good for both of us. We just happen to want the same thing. And this funny? You guys will get this. Growing up in New Orleans, you grow up in a racially charged city. 
black and white from both sides don't like each other for all kinds of reasons. But put that same audience in the Superdome on Sunday afternoon. And the dude who's like Archie Bunker at home is high-fiving the black guy next to him like they're brothers for life. How'd that happen? Well, for a moment, we both want the same thing. Right, you know, kind of the Romeo and Juliet story of how some young couple, they fall in love, but everybody else is against them. Oh, that's, the, that's like, the, this is the worst scenario, Right? Because now those two people who are going to learn over time, they got no business being together. But they all have common enemies. Everybody's against us. And we both want the same thing. It's amazing how their relationship will flourish in that little period of time. But at some point, couples, you know this, at some point, you don't just want what the other person wants. You want what you want. And the worst thing happens they don't want what you want and now your marriage is in a whole different place and as long as you were distracted from that because everybody was against us we've got this chip on our shoulder everybody and we're in love and we're okay good luck (laughs) come back and tell me two years from now when all your enemies have calmed down and they're just normal people now come and tell me how unified you are those two want to kill each other then to listen, this is a problem. This is a problem in marriages. It's a problem in tribes. I mean, the guys from Nigeria here have kind of given me some Nigerian backgrounds. They've told me about where they're from. The number of languages and tribes that are in Nigeria. The number of groups that don't get along with each other. See, at one point, you can come together and be unified. But when you start wanting what I don't want disintegration happens. And so whether that's in a couple's life, in a tribe, in a nation, globally, this this is what's inside of us because there is self-interest in here. In spite of what Rousseau tries to convince everybody of. And if you can't cure that self-interest, you're not curing much of anything. So what exactly is it that we need? Well, well, Jesus stares into our struggling world with all of its pain and disappointment and difficulties. And he offers a solution. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You and I need rest for our souls. That's what I came in here needing. That's what I'm going to leave here needing. That's what every day is about, needing rest for our souls. Well, what exactly is that? What exactly is the rest that's being described in this passage? When I think rest, I think think hammocks on the beach, gentle breeze in the background, no agenda, no one's calling, no one has a need, vacation, Lack of activity, a Saturday morning to sleep in because there's nothing pressing, right? This is is my concept, rest. When I think rest, this is what I think rest, okay? And some of that's very true. A lot of that's material, right? It's the physical part of me that wants that kind of rest and and really actually needs 
some of that dimension of rest. Uh, rest, for me, in the modern world, it can be about simplifying things. It's about the overcomplicatedness of our lives. It's, it's about the fact that there's too much of everything, too many people in our lives. And so, I don't know how you are, but I spend a portion of my life reading about how to simplify how to do less, how to delegate, how to, we read management books, we read productivity books, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to downsize, how to delegate, how to do less because we're doing too much. And there's a dimension that rest involves that too. But when the Bible speaks about rest, it's, it's speaking fundamentally about something much, much more than that. A restored soul, I'm putting your outline there, a restored soul at the very center of rest is a human soul that is in contact with something that's so complete and so satisfying and so ultimate that it stops striving. It's found something that's put it at rest. It doesn't have this weary assignment, this burden that won't go away, this labor that never takes a day off to find something to fix me. It found it. And life can feel now differently. Right in your outline there, when the human soul meets God this way, It no longer features the sense of gasping and grasping and striving, right? In in some ways, we look look like somebody who's drowning when we do life, right? You ever seen somebody who's drowning? that's That's a response full of panic, full of disorientedness, right? If you're a lifeguard, you know you've been trained how to approach a drowning person because they'll drown you, won't they? They're so panicked, they can't figure out, you're here to help me. I should cooperate. No, no. They're so panicked that they're going to drown you while you're trying to help them. How many of you guys know that's what life feels like doing life with others sometimes? They're, you're, you're walking with a person whose life has gotten, they're so drowning in life. That they're desperate and gasping and they're panicking and you're trying to help them. They're going to hurt you as well. It's just part of being human with other people. No longer do our lives answer to some invisible taskmaster who assigns too many tasks, people, and priorities to our lives. That we are convinced we must meet in order to find a sense of balance and purpose. I mean, why is it that all of us can complain here about having too much and having too much to do? I can stand in line with you. Why is that? Because we're convinced. We need that stuff if we're ever going to find rest for our souls, if we're ever going to get the inner turmoil to turn its, dial itself back and, and hush, be quiet, settle down. If I could just have that. If I could just achieve that, if I could just own that, if I just had that relationship, if I had one more thing, if I was in the know, if I, if I could interact with people, if people could be impressed, it's always one more thing. For what though? So that my soul can feel like it's arrived and I'm okay and I'm at, I'm at peace, I'm at rest. This is, this is what Jesus was speaking to. He said, you're not just flesh and bone. There's something in your soul. That only I can bring it to rest. Gregory Kukul in his book, The Story of Reality, sums up some of this philosophy. He says, there is more to us than our physical bodies. 
We're made of physical stuff, of course. But we're made of non-physical stuff too. An invisible self. A soul. This is where the Christian story stands out dramatically from all the rest. It tells us that in all the world, God created only one creature who was in a unique and important and almost indescribable way like himself, bearing his own likeness, having a soul imprinted with his very image. You recognize there's not another creature in the universe like us. If you ever ask yourself the question, who am I? Well, you now have the answer. God's imprint makes it possible for us to have a a friendship with God. Listen, there's something unique. It's like a, a stamp that if you, if you will, if it looks like this in us, it looks like this from God. It just comes to us and it, it completes us. And when the Garden of Eden took place, that's what was left. And that imprint longs for the other dimension of it to come back. Come back to me. That's what I'm not at rest about. There is an imprint of God himself in my soul. That my soul wants to be completed by God. By other things, not by people, not by success or achievement, by God himself. And that's a relational thing. I love the way he says this. God's imprint makes it possible for us to have a friendship with God. This is not a friendship of equals, to be sure. God is still king. He's still our sovereign. But he can also be our friend. Our king is not a distant like a royal, but close like a father. This is what people mean. When they say they have a relationship with God. It's the kind of friendship he intended from the beginning. It's what we were made for. And here's a great definition of rest. Not how Gregory Kugel highlights it, but I think this is a great definition of rest. God gave us everything we needed to be happy. Fulfilled. Satisfied. Living out all of God's good purpose. But the most important thing God gave us was himself. That we be continually filled with joy in his presence and find sweet contentment in his provision. This is why Jesus doesn't say come to a book. Come to an idea. Come to a people group. He says come to me. Because the only thing that's going to meet the imprint on your soul that's missing is a relationship with the living God who gave you the soul. Come to me. Listen, for for some here this morning, the thing that, that, that you need to wrestle with is do you have that kind of a relationship with God? We just ran through philosophy real quick. We could do the same thing running through religious beliefs in the history of man. And you might be able to say, well, I kind of identify more with that religious belief than this one. That's not a relationship with God. That's knowledge of ideas. Right? I, have, I have knowledge that I had ancestors. I had knowledge of relatives that I never met. I don't have any relationship with them. I don't know what it is to be loved by them, for them to observe my life and engage my life, 
for me to take up a personal awareness of what that look meant when you did that and what that mannerism means and why do you say that the way you do? I don't have any idea about that, but I know I have a grandfather. I know I've got great-grandfathers. You can know God like that, right? I mean, there's a God out there somewhere. You know, he's part of a 12-step program. He's some kind of a higher power. That's not a relationship. This God wants to be in intimate relationship with us. In that sense, I get we used to use these terms. These are not good terms to use anymore, by the way. Uh, it's about a relationship, not about religion. Okay, that makes sense to everybody who's 47 years old and up. Trust me, the rest of people don't have any idea what the heck you're talking about. So that's why I'm going through the detail of saying, listen, religion has a bunch of thoughts in it. And you can kind of agree with some of those thoughts that doesn't put you in relationship with this God. Jesus didn't invite people to a pattern of thoughts. He invited people to himself. And the thoughts helped us know where to put our feet to get there to relate to him. That's what he offers this morning. And listen, if you're here this morning, you're feeling like, yeah, yeah, okay, you you just lost me. I don't don't get that relationship thing. Ah, well, there's a reason why you're here this morning. And it's all about discovering the relationship God wants to have with you and you with him. Now listen, some of us here come into a relationship with God, but we're struggling to find rest still. Unfortunately, listen, we live in a fallen world. There's coming a day when you won't struggle at all. You'll be in heaven and everything will be smooth. But right now, they've got some struggle to the rest component for us, right? I put your outline there. Rest is not some lazy image of an unengaged, sedentary, mindless, non-agenda existence. It's actively enjoying God and his provision and purpose in our lives. It is actively. So don't, don't get the idea that rest means nothingness. Rest means... Bl- Spiritually, what do you look like when you're at rest? No, that looks like a comatose person. Uh, rest looks living and it's engaging. And it's got life flowing in it. It's just operating from a different sense of how it feels right now to be doing life. It's not an invitation to nothingness. It never was, right? I'm going to read this quickly. Eric, you can make your way back up here. Judah Smith wrote a book called How's Your Soul? A little bit of a long quote. Stick with me. He says, I want to, I want to dive a little deeper into how we can be healthy on the inside. We'll be looking at a number of needs and facets of the human soul. He says, as we get started, I want to take a look at the original environment of the human soul. In other words, what is the atmosphere that is most helpful for the human soul? What was the setting and context that God originally designed for us? When he created the soul, he placed it in an optimal environment in a place where it could thrive, right? So this is a story of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, verses 7 through 9, verse 7, describes the creation of humanity this way. Quote, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Right, there's your material and immaterial dimension of man. And man became a living creature. Then, starting with verse 8, right right away, there is a description of the optimum soul-nurturing environment that God created for mankind. It just might surprise you. Quote, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is 
pleasant to the sight and good for food. Remember, this is the most ideal environment God could have designed. It was the original home for the human soul, a place where our souls, spirits, and hearts would thrive. The first thing God wants us to know about the original environment is that the trees were beautiful and they were delicious fruit. Do you find that strange? It's just interesting that that's part of the setting that God had created. Consider what God is saying here. It seems arbitrary, but it's not. He's sending us a message about what our souls need. Our souls need rest. They need relaxation, enjoyment, peace, and pleasure. And there's a dimension to the life that we're living today that is absent of that. We are all so busy that there's so much of the beauty of God and the tasting of the things that God has put in our lives that we just don't take time for. All right, I'm trying to resist man thoughts. Uh, it was a Jeremiah who described God's word as something that he would eat. It was sweeter than the honeycomb. Right there, but you know, but hey, we get so busy, right? Who's got time to taste this thing? God's put it in our garden with us. He's put a revelation of himself among us. And and yet, oh, you know, I don't have time for that. Listen, we are too busy and rushing past the rest that our souls need. Smith goes on and says this. We are in danger of losing one of the fundamental keys to a healthy soul. That of rest. Of enjoying who God is and what he's created for us. God wants to remind us. How imperative rest and enjoyment are for our souls. So the first description we get in the garden is that the foliage is fun to look at. And the food tastes amazing. Why why is rest first? Rest is first because God is first. Listen, this is priceless. A restless soul is a soul that thinks it is in control and needs to take care of everything. If we do not rest, we are trying to be our own God. That's just well said, isn't it? We have to remember that even when we rest, God does not. When we sleep, God does not. And when we cease working, God does not. I think God is communicating to Adam. You know that none of this was because of you, right? I created all of this on my own and I gave it to you. So don't take yourself too seriously there, slugger, okay? (laughs) This is something I did. I made you too. So you are not God. It's not all on you. I love you and I made you just for me. So how about you enjoy the trees? Eat some fruit, relax a little bit. You're not that big a deal, just FYI. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how... Big of a deal we become in our own minds sometimes. It leads to so much anxiety and fear. Do you know where worry comes from? (laughs) From thinking we are in control. True rest is unattainable for people who are obsessed with leading their own lives. But rest is one of the primary postures of those who know Jesus. Because we have a God who is in control and who is taking care of us. 
Let me close with this thought. These these are big words that I'm not going to unpack them. But why does the Bible, and the Old Testament especially, say so much about Sabbath rest? Why was God so offended when his people wouldn't take a day off? I mean, couldn't you think of more things to be offended by? I can just tell you right now, you can offend me more by doing other stuff than that. Why? When you read the Old Testament, the way it's laid out, you get this massive revelation that's all around Mount Sinai. You get some history after that. You get a a long element of silence. And then the next big chunk of writing is about the period of the exile. Do you know why they were in exile? Because they neglected to let the land rest every seven years. And God collected all those 70 years. And he said, this is, this is all the years you didn't let the land rest. I'm kicking you out of the land. I'm going to let the land rest. And I'm going to put you in exile for all those years. God, why are you so freaked out about whether or not we rest? Well, I don't think it's the break from work so much as the self-awareness and the God-awareness that rest communicates. How on earth can you take a day off when there's so much to do? Isn't that the problem? Isn't that why we, none of us ever really experience a Sabbath? Because we just, our, our weekends are worse than our weekdays. Amen? Can I get an amen? amen? Why is that? Why do we not create any space where there's nothing right there? Except maybe some pretty trees and some tasty fruit? And a deeper awareness of the God who's at work while I'm taking the day off? How on earth could the Israelites have let the land rest every seven years? You understand that means don't plant anything. That means go out of business for a year every seven years. How many business owners love this idea? What would you have to do if you actually pulled that off? You'd have to trust God, wouldn't you? Can you see where that's the issue? Not so much whether the land isn't being abused by you horrible carbon footprint people. Sorry, that was just a political moment there for me. What about, what about the tithe? What, what, what's up with the tithe? The tithe is, is you taking 10% of your life and stashing it away from you. It, it's, an, it's an introduction to neglecting you at a 10% level and giving it back to God. What is up with that? Why does God give a rip about that? Because he needs your money? I think we all know better than that, right? I need to posture my heart in such a way that every time something comes up as a candidate for me to look to it for hope for the future, I need to be postured to say, no, God, not that, but you. Not that, but you. And so God was wise in saying, hey, every time I provide something in your life, make sure you take 10% of it and give it back to me so that your heart never learns the idea that you got this. You acknowledge that I gave that to you. Oh, and there's more where that came from. You can relax. I'm going to take care of you. There's a reason why these things are in our lives and they're massively, massively important. Listen, this morning, I want to pray for us, but this morning... God stares into our world. He sees the restlessness in whatever form you describe your own. 
He says, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. Let's stand up together. God, we're thankful for the word that brings absolute certainty to us. You really did give this invitation. It really is from you. And you really are aware of our condition. We know that because your word makes that clear. God, we thank you for the preaching of the word that, that helps us to ponder the realities of these truths for our own souls. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are in this moment with us right now. And you know our stories. You know each person's restless life and the ways that it feels restless. You know where there's not peace. You know where there's striving. You know where there's pressure and anxiety and massive fears have built up. God, you you know that. I pray you'd help each one of us, Lord, to be convinced that you do know that about us. If you guys just just bow and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you for a moment. I just want to speak to you about two categories of people. how to find rest depending on what category you're in. There's a dimension to this rest that Jesus offers. It's about a relationship with him. It comes from being related to him. The Bible speaks about us coming into a relationship with God. This Bible uses terms like salvation and conversion and coming to Christ and following him just introduce you to this thought being in relationship with God is a lot like being married to another person it is a relationship of uniqueness it's a relationship of intimacy and affection and nearness and impact but just like that it starts with a covenant that is made between two people See, you know, you just don't sort of drift your way into marriage. You have to come to a point where you commit yourself to this relationship and you sign a document and you become married. That's what a relationship with God is like as well. You don't just sort of drift your way into it. You are given an opportunity to make a decision. Jesus says, come to me. Will you come? Will you come to him and have the relationship with him that he wants to have? He wants to make a covenant agreement with you for the rest of eternity with you. And if you don't recall ever having done that, that's a pretty important thing. You're not just here today because God wants you to grab a little bit more information about a religious system of belief. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Do you want to be in relationship with him? Well, if you do, 
you can come into a relationship with him. He wants to give you his life. Do you want to receive it from him? And he wants you to entrust your life to him. Today, tomorrow, the rest of your life here on earth and into eternity. Do you want to give him your life? Do you want to stand at the altar with him and say, I do? Well, if you'd like to do that, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. And if these words are what's in your heart, pray this to God. Tell God this. Jesus, I want want to receive this invitation from you. I believe in who you are. Son of God, who came on a mission that would take you to a cross to die in my place. Shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that. I believe beyond death you were raised from the dead. And you are seated now as the king of the universe on a throne in heaven. And you give life to whoever you will by the Holy Spirit. I believe that. I want that life. God, I turn to you this morning. I turn to you from all the ways that I've tried to do life. I turn to you from all the restlessness, the burdens of my own life, my own ways, my own troubles. God, I come to you with all of it and I turn from those things to you. And I put my hope in you and you alone. Give me the life that you want me to have. That breath of life, give me that life. I pray for it. I ask for it. Come from this day forward, live in me. I receive your invitation. And I come to receive rest for my soul with you. There's another category among us who would say, no, I've walked the aisle with Jesus. I've said yes to him. But lately, rest has been eluding me. I, I feel more anxious than I do rested. I am more concerned about things. I just read to you, this is such a helpful view. If we do not rest, we are trying to be our own God. A restless soul is a soul that thinks it is in control and needs to take care of everything. Oh, I think some here need to hear God say, can you just take a break and just trust that I'll still be at work? Can you stop pressing so hard And seeking to control so much. And just trust that I'll be at work. In the places that you're so anxious about. Can you come to me and find rest for your soul. By recognizing who I am to you. I'm your God. I made you. I set you in the place where you are. Around the people that are in your world. With the challenges that you face. I'm in all that. And I love you. And I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. There's no way I can forget you. 
And I neither sleep nor slumber. I'm always at work in your life. God wants to help some folks who have been struggling with anxiety. And I just, a few came to mind as I was praying for this service. Invite you forward to to meet with God, to have a deep, meaningful conversation and encounter with his presence. I believe there are some who financially you are in a difficult, fearful place. You are busy in your mind trying to turn over every possible option, trying to solve things every possible way. You have literally written down and rebudgeted and rebudgeted. And you've been trying for quite some time now. And the anxiety over your finances is wearisome and laborious and a burden to you. I think Jesus wants you to be able to come and find rest. For your soul. I believe there are some parents here who are under the weight and the burden and the wearisome task of where your children's lives are or where they're headed, or maybe just the fears of where they might head. And you have over-enlarged your place in their lives. You think you are in control and that everything about you is what matters for them. What you'll say, what you'll provide, how you'll interact with them, what you said yes to, what you haven't said yes to, what you said no to and you should have not have said no to. You, you are laboring over these things. The guilt and the burden of another human being who just happens to be your child is, is suddenly all on you rather than on the God who created that soul himself. I think God would like to let you know that he's at work even if you don't know how to be at work. He's at work when you have been a problem. He's at work when you have failed. He's at work when you were not interested and he's at work now that you are hyper-interested. He is at work. The last category was for singles who are here, who are under the burden of a desire to be married and the weariness of that task. Because things don't seem to be changing and you have wondered and questioned, what what do I do? What didn't I do? How do I fix this? Is this ever going to change? So I think Jesus stares into your weariness and he says, come to me, come here to me. And I will give you rest in your soul. So listen, this morning, if you're here in any of those categories or other categories, I want to invite you to come and, and meet with God. We got to talk about that at the men's retreat. Encountering God is a unique opportunity that our souls need. So this morning, 
come out from where you are and just just come and find a place just to pray. And maybe some other folks will come and pray for you. And who knows what God might impart as they just pray in faith for your life. But if this is what life is feeling like to you in any of these categories or in others, come. Come, let's not waste our time. Come. Jesus invites us, come, come to me.